All right. Well, if you want to open your Bibles, not if, open your Bibles to, uh, to Revelation 20. And uh, if you're new in here, we have been, uh, we've been walking through Revelation for a long time, even before I started teaching the class. And uh, we're at the very end, so we're in the, the last few chapters of Revelation. And we're in, uh, this week, we're going to get our first glimpse into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is wonderful stuff. This is where, I think I told you guys ahead of time, and we could probably camp out here for the remainder of our life and never exhaust all the wonderful things that the Lord says about Christ and his coming and the kingdom. Um, but uh, when you look at Revelation, the, it, it, it really recaps or, you know, the, the, all the kingdom verses in Revelation are right here. Three verses real quick, and then we're on to uh, to the judgment of Satan, uh, the great white throne, and then the new heavens and the new earth. So what I thought we would do is uh, exposit what the scripture says here. We're just going to stay in Revelation today. Now, I mean, we're going we're gonna to have to hop around to explain some of this stuff, but we're not going to get into all the details of the kingdom. But I want to do that. I want to take a little break here and do some of that. But real quick, uh, to get you back into where we left off. Last week, if you weren't here or if you were here, we talked about the binding of Satan and what that is. We talked about the future binding of Satan in Revelation 21 through 3. We talked about the place of his binding in the abyss in hell. So he is going to be taken uh, from his place of, of being able to do his work now, roaming the earth, doing uh, all the stuff that we saw in the tribulation, being the power behind the Antichrist, all that, and bound in the abyss for a thousand years. Um, we talked about who, it, you know, who Satan is biblically and, and uh, who it is that's being bound, what his what he does here on earth now, uh, as, as opposed to what he will be allowed to do during the millennial kingdom, which is have no influence on the earth, which is the third point, the purpose of the binding, that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Um, and so during that thousand years of his binding, Satan is uh, unable to, uh, to, um, uh, to devour. He's unable to uh, be the, the one to deceive and to bring about uh, lies, falsehood, anything like that. Uh, and during that thousand years, Christ reigns on earth in peace, righteousness, uh, and justice. Well, I, I told you about uh, some of these books that I would recommend if you want to read some things on the side. But Michael Vlock in his book about this says, Satan is incarcerated and confined in a real place called the abyss. So then, more than a specific function of Satan is hindered, Satan himself is absolutely confined to a place that results in a complete cessation of all that he does. He's imprisoned, and being in the abyss means no access to earth. And like I said, I mean, we're, we're flying through Revelation, but there's some great studies on this. A lot of the stuff that I'm reading as I'm doing my study, I put over here because I just want you to see it. And if you, if you have a desire to dig in more, uh, to, not only to you know, what's happened, the binding of Satan, but even the millennial kingdom. So actually, I'm going to point this out real quick. <laughs> so these are two tiny books, real short. One's on premillennialism. Well, all that means is just there must be a future thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, if you start with this, the historical grammatical hermeneutic. Uh, and then Revelation 20 by Matt Waymeyer just discusses this chapter alone, and those are tiny and short. So if you're just like, I just want to know more about that. I also put some other things over here that are really cool. I'll talk more about this today. Greg Harris uh, was a professor out at Masters. Uh, he's written a whole series of books called the, the Glory Books, but what he did in this one is kind of summarized the studies, and, and it just talks about 
It takes all the Old Testament, not all, many of the Old Testament prophecies from Genesis all the way through Malachi and just shows the different kingdom prophecies and things that must occur on this earth as Christ reigns as king and pulls it all together. But I like his books just because he does, it's a very reader-friendly book. It's not like a technical book. Uh, it's almost, you can almost read it like a devotional, but it's pulling in all of these things, uh, everything from uh, uh, prophecies of the new temple to what Christ must do for the Abrahamic Davidic covenant. Um, this is a book put together by John MacArthur. It's different uh, authors for different chapters, but basically, again, same sort of idea. Uh, the things that must happen during the millennial kingdom, if what Christ says in, or what God says in the Old Testament uh, occurs uh, the way that He says it'll occur. And then uh, this will come up a little bit today. This is a good book that I thought was really good. It talks about the rapture and, uh, and um, why a pre-tribulation rapture makes the most sense biblically. Again, this is all starting with a hermeneutic that we adopt here at the church. That if you start with a historical, grammatical, or hermeneutic, you don't really have options on end times. You, you must end up here because we believe that the Lord will do what he says he'll do. He'll fulfill prophecy the way he's always fulfilled prophecy. And we don't look at the Bible with an allegorical interpretation. We don't read it through a covenantal lens. Uh, we just let it read the way it reads. And so you'll land in these places. And then finally, this is my favorite, but it's a fatty. Uh, so it's Michael Vlock. He's a professor out at Masters. Now I can't remember where he's at now. But basically, he takes the idea of the kingdom of God and traces it through the whole Bible to put together a, a theology of the kingdom of God biblically and what the Lord says will happen in the kingdom, specifically the, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Uh, and it's, again, it's just, it's great. It's comprehensive. So it's, you know, it's, he's taken uh, many, many passages and then putting it all together to give you like, this is what the Bible says about the kingdom, which is what I wish we could do in this class. I wish we could stop here at the beginning of the millennial and, and go, this is what, Here's the things that the, the Bible says, and I am going to do a little bit of that, but not today. Today, we're going to stick with what the scripture says, but I just want to point you to those because uh, you can read those on your own on the side, and like I said, the, start with the little ones because it kind of gives you a, a, a real quick overview, but some of the, those are some of my favorites uh, that I've been reading. We did talk last week about um, numbers in Revelation. Uh, again, talking about we're, we're in Revelation 20, 1 through 6, and six times in those verses, or, or 1 through 7, six times in 1 through 7, it talks about a thousand-year kingdom uh, and how only our camp believes that it's a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. But we talked about how in Revelation that numbers are never used symbolically. They always mean what they say they mean, you know. And so it wouldn't be, you would have to change your interpretation of Scripture to get to this point. We've read all these other numbers and we read them as if they meant exactly what they said. And then all of a sudden you get to these verses and you're like, well, a thousand could mean a bunch of things, you know. And so real quick, I mean, you have to go, you can go back and listen to the the sermon or um, get my notes. But this is what we concluded. And we talked about Robert Thomas's quote that he said the fact is that no number in Revelation is verifiably a symbolic number. On the other hand, non-symbolic usage of numbers is the rule. Uh, yet the confirmation of a single number in Revelation as symbolic is impossible. And we, we showed a bunch of different uh, things, uh, a bunch of different numbers and, and how we have interpreted those last week. But then we summed up with this, and here's some quotes from Michael Vlock, Matt Waymeyer, and Wayne Grudem. Basically, the binding of Satan means that for the first time in history, mankind will not have to deal with Satan's deceptive ta- tactics. That's what it talks about in the purpose statement, that he will no longer be able to deceive the nations. And then if you read in verse 7, when he's released, the very first thing he begins to do is deceive the nations. And so, 
the, the, if you read it the way it is written, uh, then there is a time of a thousand years where he's unable to do that. And during that time, Christ reigns. To be bound and confined to the abyss is to be totally cut off from any activity or influence on the earth. Uh, and then and the imagery of throwing Satan into a pit and then shutting it and sealing it over him gives a picture of total removal from influence on earth. So that's where we left off. Satan has been bound. He is in the abyss. Christ has returned. He's, the whole battle of Armageddon has happened. He's wiped out the armies that were camped from Basra to Megiddo. They're gone. And now Christ is going to reign on his throne and like I said, there's a lot of, in Scripture about this time period. But in Revelation, you only have these three verses. And it really just focuses on one thing at the beginning, one thing at the end, and the rest. It's almost like he, he, the, the, John or the Lord is expecting you to go read the Bible to fill in the blank. You know what I mean? It's like, well, just go read the, the rest of the word if you want to, you know. It's, uh, so anyway... Uh, but I forgot about this, too. i got to tell you this. we got a little bit of a schedule change before I jump in here. So I'm going to be out a bunch in the upcoming few weeks. Uh, next week, I'm going up with a college group to uh, the Devoted Conference. Uh, so Joel Teague will be in here next week, and, and you are going to be teaching on mental illness. Mental illness. I, said, I told Joel, I was like, just think of the people in the class and what would be the most beneficial. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so Joel will be here next week talking about mental illness. We'll be back on the 13th and the 20th. So we're going to, after this week, we're going to take a, a slight break from the, the, the verse-by-verse exposition of Revelation. And I'm going to take the next three times that I'm in here to, to look at this millennial kingdom thing in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at, on November 13th, we're going to look at the covenants of, of God. We're going to look at the Abrahamic, Davidic, new, and priestly covenant and how those things must be fulfilled during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Uh, November 20th, we'll look at a bunch of the other promises, everything from a, a temple having to be built to sacrifices that must happen during that time uh, to the different feasts that will happen, the Feast of um, uh, Tabernacles and the Passover and some of the other feasts that are named that happen during the Millennial Kingdom. So that'll be really neat you know, because sometimes you're like, wait, why would there be sacrifices if Christ is the perfect sacrifice? Why would there be a high priest if Christ is the great high priest? There's some things that are good to look at Hebrews, Old Testament, and go, how and when does this happen? You know? So we'll look at some of that stuff. Uh, to, November 27th, Jeff will be here. Um, I won't be here that week. And he's going to give us an update from his uh, trip to Kenya with Shane. Uh, and also, uh, since we're going to be talking about heralding the gospel of the kingdom, I was like, Jeff is our evangelism kind of master here at the church. I was like, come and tell us about our job here on this earth to herald the message of the king now. Uh, And so he's going to do that. December 4th, we'll talk about uh, the kingdom conditions. And what I mean by that is just some of the things that we know that must happen, again, on the earth. There's harmony between man and animal. There's long, long life during that time. Uh, there, there's uh, the production of, of fruit and, and uh, harvest year-round. You know, there's a lack of drought and, and, um, and uh, stuff like that. There's just things that the Bible describes that will happen during this millennial reign that haven't happened historically yet, must happen in the future. Either that or it was just all some sort of allegorical, symbolic language. So we'll talk about what are the conditions of the kingdom. And then December 11th and 18th, uh, again, I'll be out. Mark Watts will come in. He's going to teach from 1 Timothy 5, and talk about uh, caring for our parents as our parents get older. I thought that would be something very beneficial for all of us. Um, we won't meet on the 25th and the 1st. There's no Sunday school those weeks. That's the day of Christmas and New Year's. And we'll be back January 8th with the next verse, Revelation 20, verse 7, 
which is when Satan is released, and then we'll see uh, what happens after he's released from the abyss. So I just want to give you a heads up. That's what's coming. Uh, So we're going to look at these verses today, talk about what he says in Revelation about the Millennial Kingdom, and then I do want to take some time over the next few uh, weeks that we meet to uh, to talk about what does the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament uh, say about this Millennial Kingdom, and we'll we'll look at that. So, like I said, uh, here we're just going to take a little glimpse into the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, It's really just two parts. Um, and you're going to see basically uh, at the very beginning of the kingdom what happens to the faithful, at the very end of the kingdom what happens to the unfaithful, what happens to the unbelievers, and then the middle of the kingdom or the, the actual kingdom itself, you've got to go back and, and read the word of God. These are just helps to help pull it together, you know. So if you want to read one of these books, like I said, I would, I would suggest either the, the King and His Glory by Dr. Harris or, or He Will Reign Forever by Michael Vlock, and that would help you just kind of see... Uh, how the, these kingdom prophecies have been laid out biblically and the things that they must occur um, in, in some way uh, as Christ reigns on his throne here on this earth. They're not, they're not heavenly promises, earthly promises, uh, which makes them even more glorious because to, to know that Christ will redeem creation, that he will reign on his throne, that he'll do all of this uh, uh, exactly like he says, I think that, that is a, a great uh, expectation and uh, it gives us great hope um, and only a great God can redeem this creation after the effects of sin for thousands of years. And that's exactly what he's promised to do. So uh, it's, it's exciting stuff. So I would in, I encourage you to read some of those. And you got time because we won't get to the next verse till January 8th. So this is your Christmas reading assignment. Uh, and so, uh, so anyway, but there is a reason that only these three verses are given in Revelation. So I thought let's focus on that. And it, it continues the narrative of what's going on at the very end. And then we'll get back into it on January 8th. So let's read together uh, Revelation. Oh, I didn't put it on here. You can just open your Bibles and we'll read it together. And then we'll, uh, we'll look at the, uh, a glimpse into the millennial kingdom and with a focus on the resurrection of the tribulation saints. So chapter 20, uh, I'm just going to read 1 through 6. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him. So that, purpose statement, he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, Let's ask the Lord to help us understand this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're able to come here to open your truth, to hear you speak to us. And we pray, Father, that you would just give us uh, discernment and wisdom to understand your truth. Uh, with each of us, let your word do its work today to continue to refine us, to continue to make us into the image of Christ, to continue to uh, cause us to, to grow in our faith and to grow in our love for you and for others. And, 
And we just thank you so much uh, that you have not left us alone. You've given us your spirit here on earth. You've given us your word. Uh, and, and you're always doing your work in us. And we just pray that that would be a work of softening, of, of um, transforming and changing. Um, and uh, we pray that no one in this room would be hardened by your truth today. I pray this all in your heavenly name. Amen. All right. Well, so like I said, we're going to look at a glimpse in the millennial kingdom. We're going to break it into four parts. And this is kind of what we're going to look at. Here's the main things. First, we're going to look at the thrones of judgment uh, in, in verse four. Uh, then we're going to look at the resurrection of the tribulation saints. I couldn't come up with a good alliteration, you know, same letter and how to make it, you know, stick sort of thing. So it's just, here it is. <laughs> and then we're going to look at a preview of the second resurrection, which we'll talk about that very briefly. And we'll talk more about that in the future. And then we'll um, look at a glimpse into the millennial kingdom. And like I said, that's a very brief glimpse that will, Lord willing, lead into the next uh, three times that we meet. And we can look at what uh, other parts of Scripture say about this. So the first thing, uh, right out of the gate, verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. It starts out with another of these uh, Kai Adons. We've talked about these. Uh, th- there's, there's eight of these time markers in Revelation uh, 19, 11 through 28, 1. And it's a consecutive, sequential, this is what's happening here at the very end. Uh, so from Christ bursting forth, the heavens opening up, and Christ returning all the way until the new heavens and the new earth, you've got these eight continual Kai Adon verses, and I saw, then I saw, and I saw, then I saw, over and over and over. And each of them, uh, like I told you, in my mind, the way to think about it is the Lord is revealing these things that to John that are going to be happening during this time. And it's like he sees this, and then he sees this down on earth, and then he sees this happening in heaven. And it's like it, it's showing you uh, the next thing that happens and the break in the vision. Does that make sense? And so one of the things we talked about uh, is if you, if you read it the way it reads, and, and every time you see these Kai Adon verses in Revelation, which he uses over and over and over, it's always talking to you about the, the next thing that's happening. Uh, and so anyway, here we, we have the return of Christ, and then he sees uh, the angel saying, uh, gathering all the birds to come and to eat the flesh of the men that have come and the horses that come to battle Christ at Armageddon. And then he sees them gather together for Armageddon. Uh, and then the, the battle is described. And then he sees the angel coming to bind Satan. And then he sees the millennial kingdom of Christ, which is what we're at today. After that, you'll see him say, then I saw the great white throne. Then I saw all the sinners judged by God. And then the new heavens and the new earth. So we're in the fifth of these eight consecutive uh, Kai Adon verses, and uh, and basically, if you look at the first, the fifth, and the eighth, you see Christ's return. The rest of them are focused on judgments, it's like Christ's return, judgment, judgment, judgments. Here's what Christ does: judgment, judgment, and then here's the new heavens and the new earth. And so here we are at the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I think it would help if you look at the uh, if you look at these. It actually helps to read nineteen, eleven through sixteen, and then. Verse 20, or chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 together, because it gives you kind of a description. Christ coming uh, with the armies, and then, then the millennial kingdom. So if you do read it, I put it up here, but you could open your Bibles and look at Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And then we'll skip the three Kai Adons between that that talk about Armageddon, and then read the next part. And I think that helps understand uh, some of the, the verse here. So he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who set on, uh, set on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. So this is talking about Christ. 
Christ. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And look at this verse. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations. Uh, so we just saw that in Armageddon. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, which is describing the millennial kingdom. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then 20, verse 4. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, not received the mark on their forehead or their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So if you read it like that, then I think it helps understand what these thrones are and who's sitting on these thrones, plural. Uh, these thrones that, these, that, that, that they are sitting on are thrones both for judging and ruling. They're thrones for judging and ruling. Let me see if I have some of this up here. Um, if you look at these thrones used in other parts of Scripture, these thrones of judgment, uh, you see in Psalm 122.5, talking about this future kingdom of God, um, it says there will be thrones, uh, I'm sorry, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Um, so plural thrones, thrones that are set there for judgment. Daniel 7, again, 9 through 10, describing the return of Christ in this millennial kingdom. Uh, talks, he says, I kept looking up until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. Again, biblically, this is Christ taking his seat on his throne. It's Yahweh God. That's what we know from Daniel. Uh, but this is Yahweh God, who is Jesus Christ, that we now know uh, from the, the continual revelation of the New Testament. So Christ is sitting on his throne, but there's these thrones that are set up. And it says, uh, and his vesture was like white snow. His hair was, uh, uh, of his head was like pure wool. Again, very similar to the description in Revelation 1 of who Christ is. Uh, and it says, and his throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were burning fire. So again, this does not sound like a throne of blessing. Here, this is a judgment throne. Uh, and the river of fire was flowing um, and coming uh, out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and books were open. So you can look at this. There are some similar terminologies to the great white throne when books are open and people are judged by their deeds in the books. But there's other terminology here that, that looks very similar to the, uh, the judgment that will occur before the millennial kingdom. Uh, which we talk about the sheep and the goat judgment, which, uh, and before I get there, actually Isaiah 24 also talks about this. Isaiah 24 is a chapter in Isaiah that talks about the very end. This is the end of days, the final day of the Lord, the day of judgment of God of all the earth. And at the very end of that, uh, it's very similar to what we're reading right here in Revelation 20. He says, it will happen on that day that the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven on high. So this is the, the demons, angels, these are the, the spiritual beings. And the kings of the earth, which is the, those gathered there at Armageddon, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon. We talked about that, being bound in the abyss for this thousand years. Uh, Satan bound uh, by the hand of God. Uh, the armies uh, bound because they were slaughtered and they're dead and their, their souls are in the abyss. Uh, and they said they'll be confined in prison. After many days, they will be punished. And so I think the many days, you can fill in the blank of Revelation, after a thousand years, they will be punished at the great white throne, which is where Satan and all those that are dead apart from Christ will be forever judged. 
Um, and it says, Then the moon will be abashed, the sun is shame, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So this is just a description of the end, a description of what will happen. And then, I, like I said, if you put that together also with Matthew 25, and you see uh, the, the sheep and goat judgments, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so this is, this is what we just read about in Revelation 19, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep, he says, uh, the, you know, come uh, the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So the, the ones on his left, the sheep come into the kingdom. Uh, but then for the ones on his right, this is, I took out some of the verses, by the way. You can go read the whole thing. Uh, the ones he says on his left, I'm sorry, the right, he says, come to the kingdom. To the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, what we just talked about. These will go away to eternal punishment, uh, but the righteous to eternal life. And so there is going to be a judgment, a judgment of those who are with him and a judgment of those who are not with him. The chronology here in Matthew 20. Uh, five uh, is at the uh, after the tribulation, but before the kingdom, um, and the whole list makes much more sense if you look at what they're judged for. You got you got those. All of them would say they profess Christ in this sheep and goat judgment. They're saying you know uh, that, uh, but but he's judging them based on what they did. Um, and I think if you look at the tribulation conditions and you look at what was happening in the tribulation, it actually makes the judgment make a lot more sense. So he's saying to those, you didn't visit people in prison. You didn't take care of those who are weak. You didn't feed those who are hungry. But he's talking about as, as, this, uh, uh, as they were suffering under the, the wrath of the Antichrist and all the things that happened during that time, uh, really what distinguishes those who are truly of him and truly were not were their their reactions and how they lived according to, you know, under, under strict persecution. Those who visit those in prison, the people in prison, it's not like, you know, uh, people say that verse a lot of times, start prison ministries, which is great. I mean, definitely go share the gospel to people in prison. But I think what's talking about this sheep and goat judgment are these are people in prison waiting to be beheaded and killed by the Antichrist. And there was people brave enough to go in to visit, to encourage, and to tell them to... to stay strong to the end, you know, and same thing, the people that aren't eating. I mean, if you go read in Revelation, you are denied. You can't work. You can't eat. You can't, you have to have the mark of the beast in order to live on this earth. And so they're going to be Christians that are taking care of Christians during that time. And most of them, it will cost them their life, you know? And so you talk about denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ during the tribulation, it's going to make a lot more sense. So you get to the sheep and goat judgment. I think that's what it is. At the very end, there'll be a judgment of those that are alive Many who would be professing Christ, but he's going to say that the way that you live during this time is a proof of whether or not you belong in my kingdom or not. You know? And so there'll be a separation of the sheep and the goats. So these thrones, I think the first function of these thrones is thrones of judgment. And I think that makes sense based on, uh, like I said, those, the, the verses in Matthew uh, and the verses um, in Daniel and in Psalm. And it says, so they, there were thrones set up, and it says, and they set, uh, they set on them. That's all it says. They set on them. Uh, they, I believe here, is the church. I think it's the armies coming with them. That's why I read Revelation 19, 11 through 16 to say, who, are, who is they? Um, and it's the, the armies. I mean, it just identified these armies clothed in white that are coming with Christ as he comes to reign on this earth. And the, in the close context, I think the, the most appropriate people to sit on these thrones are they that come with Christ. 
Um, so these are the saints or the church that come together with him. Uh, one of the reasons I say this is because the tribulation saints haven't risen yet in the chronology. That's what's going to happen next. So after the throne, after the judgment, then the tribulation saints rise. Um, and so those who return with him are those that are already in glorified bodies. They return to judge and to reign. Um, and I think you can make a case uh, that, that this would include the apostles. This would include the church. This would include Old Testament saints. Um, uh, but they come and they sit on the throne. Uh, to sit, it just means to, to sit down to a point to settle um, and so these are, even though they're unnamed and the designation is they, these are those that are appointed by Christ to accompany him on thrones as he sits on his throne. And there's a lot of biblical texts that talk about who is going to sit on thrones as Christ sits on his thrones, uh, on his throne. Um, and, and we'll point at a few of those real quick. So when we talk about these thrones, there are some places in the Bible where you can go back and look at Jesus himself telling certain people that they will sit on thrones and judge. Uh, you got other texts, both Old and New Testament, that talk about general people sitting on thrones and either judging or ruling. Uh, one of them is Matthew 19, uh, 27 through 29. This is uh, Peter talking to Christ. He says, Behold, we've left everything to follow you. Uh, what then will there be for us? Um, and this is, I wrote that up there to remember, this is Christ speaking specifically to the disciples, to the 11 faithful ones. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, which is exactly what we're talking about here, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So a direct promise from Christ to Peter that you will sit on 12 thrones that will be part of the judgment of the nation of Israel, which I think is, makes a good case for what's happening at the sheep and goat judgment. Uh, and then he says, And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, farms, for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Uh, in Revelation 3.21, a promise to the churches, as he's talking to the churches in Revelation, he says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down on my father, with my father on his throne. So that's a, a, a promise to uh, Christians that they will sit on thrones together with Christ uh, as he sits on his throne. And the only time that can happen is in Revelation. We're never talk, or it never shows us sitting on thrones in heaven. Uh, and when he talks about us uh, on thrones judging the nation of Israel, again, that can't happen in the eternal state. That can't happen in heaven. It must happen on earth. And so I think the best case for when does that happen and how does that happen is right here. Christ returns. There's a judgment before the great white throne of judgment at the very end. Um, also, when we talk about this judgment, it says, I sat on thrones, or they, then I saw thrones, they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Uh, the word judgment here, it means a sentence, or a sentence, usually uh, a sentence of condemnation. And we know biblically, not only are, are we going to judge, uh, but we also know that Christ is the one who has been given authority by God, both for salvation and for judgment. And so only Christ has the authority to allow others to judge together with him. He is the one that gives judgment and he gives salvation. Um, and uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, I think these are good, insightful verses here. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth because they can't make judgment calls between one another. They're taking each other to court over disputes about stuff, money. You know, they're suing one another. And, and he says to them, does any one of you, uh, when he has a case against his neighbor dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Like, why would you take 
things that are happening amongst us, the saints of God, the children of God, into the world for their judgment over matters that are happening within the family. I mean, he's basically saying, you ought to be able to settle this yourselves based on the fact of who you are, who we serve, and what our mandate and calling is. And then he says this, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And so he's saying, like, you understand what we are going to be called to do one day. We will be sitting in judgment over the world. The world is judged by you. Are you not competent to con- uh, constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of life? So again, Paul's rebuke to the church in Corinth is like, you ought to be able to handle these tiny disputes amongst yourself. They're going to rise. They're going to come. But do you understand who you are and what you will one day do? So basically, start living that now and practicing a, a, a kind of judgment that you will step into one day uh, in, in a glorified state. And then I think Matthew 18, when we talk about church discipline, uh, this is what he's talking about. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Already, you know, I think of it like how Christ is currently sanctifying us will one day glorify us, right? But in our sanctification process, we still have sin mixed in there. But, but if we are in Christ, we are already holy. If we are in Christ, we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. If we are in Christ, we are already justified. So we're clean, we're holy, we're blameless, but we're still fighting sin, and he's producing holiness in us. So you got that understanding. So it's the same thing. Uh, if we are in Christ, then we are appointed to be judges at some point. If we are in Christ, then one day th- there is a place for each of us to judge both man and angel. And if we are in Christ, then... We have not only been given that role in the future, but he will prepare us for that role so that we will be able to do that thing perfectly in him. Still judgment lies in the hands of Christ. Still judgment is perfectly done by him, but we will all share thrones of judgment with Christ. And I think part of church discipline is the church striving to accurately do that here on earth as we strive to purge sin, to call our brothers to repentance, to bring them back in. Uh, you know, and then again, with us having our sin mixed in there, but that's what we're striving to do as a church, as a whole, come to a judgment of whether this is a believer or unbeliever, uh, and then call them to repentance, either as a believer and they, they return to the body and we've won our brother, or as an unbeliever, we're recognizing them as an unbeliever at the very end of church judge, uh, discipline, so that the church as a whole will share the gospel with them, Right. There's still, a, there's still a hope for that one that we have judged an unbeliever at the end of church discipline in this life. But it's a tiny, uh, unglorified reflection of the judgment that will happen at the very end. Someday in the future, all Christians, along with the, the sa- all saints in, in God, will share the judgment seat of Christ. And we will judge between the sheep and the goats uh, who belongs to him and who does not based on their deeds, based on the way they live their lives. But we'll do it with the perfect glorified mind along with the perfect glorified judgment of Christ. And there will be no mixture of our misjudgment or anything like that, like there is now. But I think you can see that church discipline is a tiny glimpse or reflection of the, the final judgment that will be given to the saints. Uh, and I think this, these thrones of judgment at the very end are a picture of that. In John 5, again, we see that Christ is the one that has authority to judge. Uh, Here, judgment is freely given. Uh, The ability to judge is freely given to those that are on the throne. Um, And uh, and the only one that has the authority to give the ability to judge to others is Christ, who has been given the authority to judge by the Father. And we know that from John 5. 
He says, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, to Jesus Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he, has, uh, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all those who are in the tombs will hear, the vo- hear his voice. They will come forth uh, to those, um, I'm sorry, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So I'm just throwing all these things out there for you to see. Christ has the authority to judge. He's been given the authority to judge by his Father. Christ gives the authority to judge to those who accompany him on thrones as he sits on his throne at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. There's a judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom, which is the great white throne of judgment, which all those judged at that place will be cast into the eternal lake of fire, which is the second death. But there must be room somewhere biblically for another judgment where there is a, a judgment based on deeds where some are declared righteous and good and enter into the kingdom and some are not and, and are basically cast into hell. And I would say awaiting that future judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. And I think the best biblical answer <laughs> for the, the long story there is to say what is being described right here with Christ returning and they, and they sitting on thrones to judge together with him is, is that. Christ returns with the armies of heaven, those who are already glorified, who have already been raised from the dead and returned together with him to reign on earth with him. And they sit on thrones to judge first. And that judgment is the sheep-goat judgment. Um, and there's more about the sheep-goat judgment, but I've already dug deeper into this than I probably should for this verse. But I did a study on that after you guys asked that question a few weeks ago. And you can look in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 20, and Joel 3, and you can see very similar judgments separating good from bad, separating those who obey and follow him. And those are specifically talking about the people of Israel, which, again, I think is part of this. This is a, 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 a weeding out of the people of Israel, but also it would accompany all nations. So there is a judgment at the very beginning of the millennial kingdom. I think the saints will return together with the Christ. With Christ, we will sit on thrones together with him, and judgment will be given. Those who are with him will enter into the kingdom together with him without dying. Those who are not with him, who have proved to be hypocrites but are professing him, will be executed by him, and then they will, their souls will be in hell until that day of final judgment at the great white throne. All right, so that is sitting on thrones of judgment. For the second half of that verse, <laughs> uh, next we'll talk about the resurrection of the tribulation saints. So after this judgment that was given to them, it says, and, and I saw souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And if you fast forward into verse 5, this is the first resurrection. All right. So this is describing a resurrection that happens at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Um, and he says here, and I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded. In the English, it looks like it's another one of those Kai Adon. And I think it is implied there. It's not written in the text, but it is implied. And, and one of the reasons you can see that this is a, an implied uh, next step of uh, the narrative uh, is because of the, the, the accusative case uh, of the verb, the souls. It points back to the very beginning. So he's saying, and I saw thrones. And I saw souls. If you want to say it that way. I saw thrones and I saw souls. And so the thrones had to do with the judgment. The souls have to do with something else. 
Um, and so he says he sees these souls, um, and these souls have not received glorified bodies yet. Now, we know this church because the church has received a glorified body already. We talked about that with the rapture of the church. Um, we, I don't, this can't be any of the saints that are returning with him. And the easy way to identify it is he describes exactly who these people are with all, all the descriptions after he talks about the souls. Um, and so I think the only possible people this could be are those tribulation saints that were not part of the rapture of the church at the beginning of the tribulation um, and are not part of um, uh, anyone who rose from the, the grave uh, when Christ called them uh, from heaven. Uh, and we saw these uh, people in heaven, uh, Revelation 7, 9 through 17, pleading, uh, or they, they've, uh, after, after they have been martyred, they're in heaven, um, or they're, uh, it talks about them being in heaven, uh, but they have not received their glorified bodies yet. Uh, the identification of them is in the text. It says, these are those who have, uh, that were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. It literally means, uh, it comes from the word axe in the Greek. I mean, it means they, they lost their head. Now, it could be a synonym for put to death. It doesn't mean that every single martyr in the tribulation must be beheaded, but that definitely could be a means of, of uh, martyrdom during that time. But these are people that have lost their lives, and they've lost their lives, it says, because of, first, the testimony of Christ, uh, because of the Word of God, so their belief in the Word of God, clinging to the Word of God, their testimony to be a Christian, uh, they lost their life because these they would not worship the beast, it says, or his image. Again, very specific Great tribulation language uh, is not in general, you know, saints throughout the ages, but those who during this time would not worship the Antichrist or the image that was made alive by the false prophet uh, that was to be worshipped. And it says, and they were beheaded because they would not receive the mark on their foreheads or their hands, which again is what we read in Revelation 12 and 13. So these are no doubt the tribulation martyrs. This is a description of the resurrection of those who died during the tribulation. Does that make sense? So Revelation 6, 11, uh, we, we see in Revelation 6, um, these are people that have been martyred for Christ, and they're at the, um, in, in, it's a heavenly scene, and they're pleading for Christ to return and to avenge their blood. And he tells them, uh, rest for a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they have been, would be completed also. So he can't return yet because all of the saints during the tribulation haven't been martyred. Uh, they, they must die, and that is part of what's going to happen during the tribulation. Um, and then in Revelation twelve seventeen, again, you see this description of the Antichrist. Uh, he went off to make war with the rest of the children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Very specifically, exactly what we just said they were killed for. So the Antichrist is going out, Satan through the Antichrist is going out to make war with all those who... Uh, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And again, this is, describes wh- what they were martyred for. And then if you continue to read in Revelation 12, it says it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So there will be a time where Satan will be given the authority by God to overcome the saints, which just means put them to death. Um, this will be under the reign of the Antichrist. All who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone on this earth will worship the Antichrist. Uh, everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world, uh, of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So, outside of God's sovereign plan to make sure that He loses none of His children, and your name is already written in His book. The whole world will worship 
the Antichrist. If anyone is destined for captivity, the captivity goes. If anyone kills with the sword, the sword will be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. So this is a description of what happens in the tribulation. Uh, and these are basically those who died during the tribulation. They would not take the mark of the beast. They would not worship the false pro- or the, the image or the, uh, the Antichrist. Uh, they, they clung to the testimony of Jesus. They clung to the word of God. And they were killed during the tribulation. And it says that they came to life. Uh, and this is an awesome verb here. It, it just means to live again or to resurrect. It's used 10 times in the New Testament. It's not the only way to describe resurrection. It's not the only way to describe living again. But every time it's used to describe something, it's always used to describe someone rising from the dead. Every time. And so here they are literally rising from the dead. Um, Jesus used this to talk about uh, the synagogue official's daughter uh, living again in Matthew nine eighteen, In Romans 6 and in Romans 14. It talks about us presenting ourselves to God as those who are now alive from the dead. We've been raised in Christ. Um, in Romans 14, it talks about Christ himself living again. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, it talks about Christ living again by the power of God. In Revelation 2, 8, it talks about Christ again being the first and the last who was dead and now has come to life. So many times, this is how it describes Christ being dead and then living again uh, eternally. Um, what's uh, significant, and then, and then I'm sorry, in Revelation uh, 24 and 5, twice, you have those who uh, live again at the first uh, resurrection, and then those who did not live again until the end. So there will be a resurrection of the dead that will be judged. The only, other pla- the only place it describes either not Christ or the church is when it describes the, uh, the Antichrist, which again is significant. We talked about that in Revelation 13, that I, I, I think the best biblical way to understand the, you know, when the, the, um, the uh, what do you call it, the, the, the beast from the sea, which is the Antichrist, that has the fatal wound, and, and, uh, and you know, because some people say that he feigned his own death, he feigned his own resurrection, and the world was tricked into following him, but I think biblically, it, to me, it looks like he rose from the dead. He was dead in the abyss, and by God's doing, who is in sovereign control of all things, gives Satan the authority to allow this one, the Antichrist, to rise from the dead in an immortal body, which is why he can stop the false witnesses and all of that, which is why he's cast eternally into the lake of fire, surpassing the great white throne of judgment, and which is what gives him the ability to do miraculous things and powers that cause the world to worship him. Uh, because it uses the same verb to say in verse thir- uh, chapter 13, 14, the beast who had the wound of the sword has lived again. He has resurrected. He's come to life. So whether or not you believe that, that doesn't matter. But it makes sense biblically with the way the word is used. And it always means someone who was dead and is now alive again. So these, these tribulation saints, they, they came to life. And then it says they reigned with Christ. They reigned with Christ now, the word there, to reign, just means to, to uh, control, to rule, to reign together, and they're reigning with Christ. So it's his reign, and they're sharing in that reign. So the martyrs of the tribulation are given thrones to reign together with Jesus Christ during the thousand-year kingdom. Uh, this does not mean that other biblical teachings about the reigning of the saints, uh, it, it doesn't mean that only the tribulation of the saints reign. It's just saying they're, they're going to join all those other people who have been promise to reign together with Christ. And if you look biblically at who reigns with Christ, 
on this earth during the thousand year kingdom. It's the church and the Old Testament saints. This is all those who are with Christ. We are all together now with Christ reigning on thrones with Christ for a thousand years. And it's, it's again, I, I can't wait to take you into some of these Old Testament things that talk about this. But a real quick glimpse at some of the reigning verses. In Revelation 5, 9 through 10, talking about the church specifically. He says, Worthy of you to take the book, break the seals, talking about Christ. You were slain, purchased uh, for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Again, so they're, they're in heaven here. But there must come a time that they'll reign on the earth together with Christ, speaking to the church. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, again speaking to the church, Timothy says, It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, with Christ, we will also live with him, with Christ. If we endure with him here on this earth, then we will also reign with him. And we will reign with him, like we said. If you look at uh, these verses, it will be a reign with Christ here on this earth. Daniel 7 talks about this reign uh, and I think here's where you can easily bring in the Old Testament saints as well, um, that uh, the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Um, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and the dominions will serve and obey him. Again, this, this has to happen on earth. This is an on-earth thing that must take place that encompasses both Old Testament and New Testament saints. You can talk about the kingdom of priests and uh, 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 verses from the Old Testament talking about the, the people of Israel. You can talk about 1 Peter uh, where he talks about the, um, the church being a, a kingdom, or I'm sorry, a royal priesthood. But the point being is during this time, the tribulation saints who have just risen from the dead, the saints that have returned with Jesus Christ in their glorified bodies will all reign together with Christ during the thousand years where he reigns on this earth. And again, he specifically talks about the duration of this reign. He says they will reign for a thousand years. So who do they reign over? They reign over the the people and the nations that will be born from those who had not died and entered into the millennial kingdom uh, at the very beginning. Um, So there will be some, the 144,000 that Christ marked during the tribulation that could not die, they never died. So they're, they're, they have not received their uh, um, immortal, eternal bodies, uh, and they will be able to have children. Those who were uh, deemed righteous at the sheep-goat judgment, they will be able to, to marry, have children. The earth will repopulate during this time. Uh, there will be many people on this earth. Uh, we'll talk more about that soon. But they, the, the saints, those who have these glorified bodies who are together with Christ, will rule and reign over the earth um, as the earth repopulates and the nations are reborn during the thousand-year kingdom. Um, and so that's who they'll rule and reign over. Um, and they'll rule together with Christ in Jerusalem during his thousand-year reign. And it says, this is the first resurrection. This is good to understand. This is the first resurrection as opposed to the one at the end of the millennial kingdom. It doesn't mean that no one has risen first. Uh, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, this is not the first time bodies have been raised from the dead. It's the first resurrection uh, before the second resurrection at the end of the millennial kingdom. Does that make sense? So it's just designating this resurrection from this resurrection. But if you want to say it this way, the first resurrection has multiple stages or phases. Uh, we know, first, all, first off, that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep. So Christ himself is the very first. You talk about one that has been raised with a glorified body that will never die and is currently living in that body in heaven. Christ is the first fruits. 
Uh, and it's a picture of what all of us will be uh, in him. He says, uh, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So if you die in Adam, you die a second time, part of the second death. If you die in Christ, then you will live in Christ. Uh, each of us in his own order, Christ the first, the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So again, that little verse encompasses all these things. The rapture, the resurrection of the saints there, uh, the resurrection of the saints at the, you know, when Christ was raised from the dead uh, in, in Matthew 27, um, and, then, uh, and then the tribulation saints, and then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God and uh, to God, to the God and Father, and when he has abolished all rule and all power and all authority. So that's the, that's the end of the end. That's the new heavens, new earth, where Christ hands everything over to God, and God is all in all. But obviously, part of the first resurrection will be Christ. The other time we see bodies raised, uh, and we're not told, you know, like when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was dead, Christ raised him, but Lazarus died again. You know, when the official synagogue official's daughter was raised from the dead by Christ, she died again. When Eutychus, who falls out the window in Acts, is raised from the dead by Paul, he dies again. These, we don't know. But when Christ raised from the dead, what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, it says tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. I don't know if those are saints that are in the tombs for two days and they died again. I think, according to this text, these are, this is just a, it's a glimpse of the power of Christ. As he rose from the dead, it affected some of the saints that were there with him. And I just wonder if they went ahead and ascended bodily into heaven uh, just like we will at the rapture, just like Enoch did back in the day, just like Elijah did when God called him and raised him up into heaven. But anyway, it says these bodies of the saints who have fallen asleep were raised, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. So there were some that raised from the dead, perhaps with glorified bodies, at the resurrection of Christ. If they were glorified bodies, then they're with him in heaven. Um, and if they were not, then they died again. But that might be uh, a little piece of the first resurrection. We also know about the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest of the, those who do have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's basically saying, we will all come with him at the same time. Uh, so don't worry about your friends and relatives who've already died. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Now, this is talking about, because when Christ returns at the very end to wipe out his enemies, we come with him. There has to come a time when the dead in Christ will rise together with, and, and those who are on earth and alive will rise and they will meet Christ bodily in the air. And we call this the rapture. The only timing of this must occur before uh, the return of uh, or before the tribulation. Uh, and I think, and again, this is a whole nother discussion. You can go read a book on it. Uh, we don't have time to talk about it today. But I think the best biblical timing for the rapture would be prior to the tribulation, prior to the distress of Jacob, which is the tribulation, which is focused on the repentance of Israel and the judgment of the earth. Uh, the church is taken bodily to heaven to be with Christ, which explains who's there at the, uh, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, who's returning together with Christ. And, uh, and if you talk about the dead in Christ that rise, I think easily you can make cases also Old Testament saints who are dead. So this is the, part of the first resurrection. 
The, if, so if you want to look at the first resurrection as a whole, it starts with Christ. It's possibly the ones at the resurrection of Christ. It's obviously the rapture. It's the tribulation of saints. And the end of the tribulation of saints, that's the completion of the first resurrection. Those are all who belong to him. They will all be alive. They will all have glorified bodies. They will all reign with him on this earth. And they will sit on thrones together with Christ. And that is where we will all be. So that's a little picture of the first resurrection. Um, the, other, the other real quick one. These two witnesses that died in Revelation 11 that the Antichrist was able to slay, they rose from the dead and they ascended to heaven too. So I think there's another piece of those who are already uh, raised from the dead. And then, again, biblically, you can see there's obviously two resurrections. Luke 14, 14 talks about the resurrection of the righteous. Acts 24, 15 uh, also talks about there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So there are two resurrections. The resurrection of the, white, the righteous, which is everything we just talked about, and the resurrection of the wicked, which is, I think, what the next verse talks about. In uh, verse 5, it says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So in Revelation 5, we start talking about another group. And again, we're just talking, calling this a preview of the second revelation, because we're going to, our second resurrection, because we're going to talk more about this when we get in verses 7 through, I think, 11 or 12. I can't remember where that ends. But it's uh, the rest of the dead are those who died without Christ, because I think the first resurrection easily biblically encompasses everyone who has, all, who has followed God, believed in Christ, Old Testament saints, all the way up through uh, the, the tribulation saints, the whole, the whole of them. Uh, and they did not come to life. Same uh, uh, verb. Uh, they were not raised again until the thousand years were completed. Uh, and, and the word completed here, it means that they were in it, ended, they finished, they were fully accomplished. There has to be an end to the millennial reign of Christ. Again, which means the millennial reign can't be happening. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not the eternal kingdom. Uh, and, uh, and I don't believe it's talking about what is happening in some unstated time right now. Uh, so the end of the millennial kingdom, there'll be another judgment. There'll be another resurrection. Uh, Daniel talks about this resurrection. Daniel 12, 2 through 3, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there will be a resurrection of those who do not belong to God. They will raise from the dead with bodies that cannot be, uh, that cannot perish and will be cast into the eternal lake of fire where they will, will be able to endure the wrath of God for all eternity, which is a terrifying end. Uh, John 5, 28 through 29, where I read that one, but it talks about those coming to life uh, and uh, those who did good deeds to resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to resurrection of judgment. So that is, uh, that is the, a preview of the second resurrection, and we'll talk about that more in the future. But finally, the end of these verses, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Again, a reason why this must encompass everyone who has ever died with faith in God, in Christ, whether that's Adam all the way to the tribulation saints. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Blessed here, it just means blessed, happy, fortunate. It's one of the, it's like when we read the Beatitudes, and blessed is uh, uh, he who, and all the, fill in the blank, holy. It just means those who are set apart, who are pure, blameless, sanctified, consecrated by God. These are the saints. These are those who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. These are those who have been purchased by him. These are those who have been made like him. These are those who are brethren and sisters of Christ for all eternity. And blessed and holy are these. Um, 
And uh, it says, uh, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. It means who shares in, uh, who is basically numbered amongst these people. The people we're talking about right now, those are the, that's the group you want to be in. This is the family you want to be a part of. And the only possibility of being blessed by God and being made holy is to be washed clean with the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it says, blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection. Again, we've talked about that already. Uh, the, the word used for resurrection here is used 42 times in the New Testament. It's always talking about people rising from the dead. So it's different than the verb that we used earlier, but it's the same uh, uh, description. Uh, and it means a rising up or a raising to life. Um, and so all those who are part of this uh, uh, will be blessed. And um, he says, over, this, over these, the second death has no power. The second death, again, I'm just really quickly going to look at this because we're going to talk more about the second death soon because the upcoming verses uh, do a very more thorough job of explaining the second resurrection and the second death. Um, but we do know uh, what, where, what the second death is because it's clearly explained right after this. Actually, uh, in Adventure Club, uh, this last week, we talked about sin bringing death. And we talked about spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. If you look at the Bible, there's, if you want to describe it that way, there's kind of three kinds of death. There's spiritual death. We're all born spiritually dead. We're separated from God, unable to understand, discern things in God. We have to be raised to life by Christ, even to be able to have faith and to believe in him. You know, that's something, that, a work of him. It's a gift of grace. There's a physical death that all of us will face because of sin. Um, if we, uh, this body will die because it's a, it's a body that's infected by sin, if you want to say it that way. But those who die physically in Christ will rise together with him and have eternal life. Those who die physically apart from Christ will face the third death, the eternal death, which is eternal separation and eternal death. And so that's what Revelation uh, 20, 7 through 15 is talking about. He says, I saw a great white throne, him and set upon it, presence of heaven and earth fled away. And, I, and it says, no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. So this isn't a judgment of some of these receive eternal life and some of these are separated through eternal destruction. This is a sentencing to eternal destruction across the board. It says, the sea gave up the dead that were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. They were judged, everyone, according to their deeds. Uh, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So basically, God has his book of all of his children. He has it written before the foundation of the world. We know that. Uh, and, and, and they all belong to him. Everyone else, uh, is, they're judged according to their deeds. Everyone in the book of life, that judgment was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. The only reason they're not judged according to their deeds is because of their belief in Christ. And Christ paid for that. It's not that they're better inherently. It's not that they were better on earth. It's just that they, they believe in Christ. They were born again. They trusted him. And he washed them clean with the, his blood that he poured out on the cross. God poured out his wrath on his son. All the rest, this is the wrath of God being poured out on them at the final day of judgment. So the wrath of God will be poured out on all sin. You can either have it poured out on Christ for you or on you at the very end. Those are the, the two options. And so um, the second death is talking about eternal death. And he's saying that those who are part of the first resurrection, that second death has no power over them because Christ drank that wrath at the cross. 
so they, the, the second death has no authority, no rule, no permission, no ability or capacity to harm them whatsoever. Those who are in Christ do not need to fear the great white throne of judgment. They don't need to fear the eternal lake of fire because they trust and know that God is faithful to his word and that his son took that for them. And that's what faith in Christ is. Uh, it says, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Basically, this is showing their religious political functions on the earth uh, based on their faithfulness in this life. Uh, this is a future middle indicative verb, which means this will and must happen in the future. Uh, and it says they will be priests, literally. Uh, they will be, like First Peter says, a royal priesthood. There, there's going to be some function uh, of the church uh, as, as priests on this earth. Uh, it says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our function here now. But this will also be our function during the millennial kingdom of Christ, but perfectly. Um, uh, we know in uh, Revelation 1, 5, it says, he made us to be a kingdom, a priest to his God and uh, Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So this is already what we're called here on earth. And then Revelation 5.10, after the church has been raptured, they're in heaven. He says, you made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So even though it is our function right now to be priests of God, it is our function right now to be together with Christ. There will be a future time where we'll be priests with Christ, and we will rule and reign with Christ uh, here on this earth. And this is also something he promised to Israel. If you look at the promises for Israel, it says, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were that when they were on this earth, but there's more to that than just what you saw historically. There must be a time where Israel will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart for him on this earth. And I think the best way to describe all of these things is to say that time of royal priesthood, that time of a kingdom of priests, that time where the church and Israel will be priests on earth and will rule and reign together with him, along with the tribulation saints, along with everyone that believed before Abraham, all of it, you add it all up, it has to, must happen during the millennial kingdom of Christ because it hasn't happened yet and it won't happen in the eternal state. It's not happening in heaven because a lot of these things don't make sense in heaven. So therefore, the best way to describe all of that is all of these will raise from the dead in those times that we talked about, and they will rule and reign as priests and as, as co-rulers with Christ on earth for a thousand years as he rules on the throne of David in Jerusalem in the kingdom of Israel over all the nations on this earth. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released, and then we'll have the new heavens and the new earth. So, that's a lot. Here's your homework. Your homework for this week. <laughs> First thing is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Rejoice. So rejoice in the fact that this is our future. We know that God is faithful to his word. We know he must do every single thing he has proclaimed throughout scripture. And we know that we must rise from the dead. We know that we will rule and reign with him. We know that we will one day be with him on this planet. He will be sitting on his throne and we will be priests with him and we will rule with him and we will judge with him and all because of who he is and the authority that he has. And that has nothing to do with our own merit or works. It has everything to do with his wonderful grace and mercy and love that he's poured out on us by taking the wrath that we deserve on the cross and by giving us new life now and by promising us these things in the future. So if you don't know him, repent and believe in him. If you do know him, then rejoice that this is our future and that there's nothing that can stop 
his plan. In fact, every single evil that you see around the world is only working for this end. Does that make sense? He is in control of all of it. And then finally, uh, read some of these books because it'll help. Uh, if you want to look over here and find something good to read over the Christmas break, uh, there's some really good stuff that will maybe help fill in some of the gaps of this kingdom stuff. Because we are going to take three weeks to look at it, but three weeks to read the whole Bible, uh, obviously we're just not going to get all of it, you know. But uh, hopefully you'll come back and hear more about what happens in the Millennial Kingdom because it is exciting and really, really neat stuff. So uh, what time is it? Any questions? I have a random I don't know. I mean, I, I think Paul, but the Bible never says. Uh, you know, um, he always talks about being an apostle, untimely born, all that sort of stuff. He's obviously an apostle of Christ. We know Matthias took the place of Judas. I don't know. There's 12 thrones and 12 apostles judging on him. And in my mind, it makes sense that it's Paul. But in Christ's mind, it could be Matthias. And that's, I'm good with whatever he thinks is best. <laughs> yes. I know, I think they're bound with him. I think when he talks about him judging, you know, especially in uh, Isaiah 24, I think it's an all-encompassing verse where he talks about him judging the heavenly hosts. Uh, I think along with Satan, they're all cast. It says, and it's a, it's a prison for Satan and his angels. I think it's Matthew 25 where it says that. So um, I, I think that's the, because they're, yeah, they're not just running around leaderless, like what do we do? They're, there's the potential for sin. We'll look at that. So really what you'll see, if you look at the Old Testament, yes, there is the potential not to submit to Christ. There's the potential for sin. There's immediate justice, so sin won't take root. And, you know, I mean, if, if this person steals and he's killed immediately, very few people will steal at that point. You know, that, the, the child disobeys his parents and killed immediately. I mean, it's, it's, it's a rule with a rod of iron, but there, there will also be... I mean, it'll be peace on earth. I mean, there, there'll be a desire to, to submit to and to, to please the Lord. Um, so potential for sin will still be there. Death will still obviously be there because we'll see that. Um, and I think what it really shows, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to this, what it really shows is the, the sinfulness of our own hearts. Because minus Satan and any outside influence, we immediately rebel as soon as there's a leader. You know what I mean? So that thing is already in us. And what you'll see is even under pristine ideal conditions in the millennial kingdom, with Christ on the earth and all the saints with him and visible glory and everything else, there is still a rebellion in the hearts of man uh, that will be under the surface. Um, And, yeah, I think there's going to be probably snippets in the kingdom where it pops up, but it's done away with. But then, you know, when Satan's released, there's, I mean, it says he gathers the nations. I mean, there's a lot, you know. So, yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I mean the Bible. I, I don't know of anything that explains that process, but that has to be what happens. Whether or not they die and then ascend to heaven, you know, and and when the New Jerusalem comes down, they're part of that, or whether they die and are raised right there by the King. I don't know. You know, I uh, I don't I don't I don't know if anybody knows anything biblically that tells us more about that. They have to be with him. They will always be with him. Um, 
and, uh, and, and there must be some that die. I mean, that's definitely a potential. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, not after that. Like, anyone that dies. Oh, yeah, I think everybody during the Millennial Kingdom has, I mean, it's just like now, you have the ability. If you want to say it, look from the human standpoint, you have the, both the call, the responsibility, and the command to believe in Christ, repent of sin. I mean, there's still going to be sin. I mean, the potential, I mean, and we'll talk about the sacrifices during that time, too. I think that helps fill in the blank on that. So everyone will have the ability to repent, to believe in Christ, and to be born again, even during the millennial kingdom. Um, but some won't. But, but, you know, you talk about right now, it says that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, because there's a lot of people that are part of the church now that are not part of his church. You know, so we got the sheep and the goats mixed together. Well, it'll be the same thing during the millennium. Um, but you will have true believers and, and feigned belief. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that will only become evident at the end when those who fake, you know, feign their allegiance to Christ uh, uh, play that out under the leadership of, of Satan at the end. I mean, Christ will know who's his. Um, but, uh, but that'll be, yeah. Does that help? I'm learning with you. There's, there's lots of things I'm just like, man, I don't know. We'll, you know. But as you dig, you start, I tell you, it's, it's pulling the whole thing together gives you the clearest picture. And the reason we even have some questions is because there are some things we just don't know. That the things revealed to us belong to us, right? They belong to the sons of God. But those things that are not revealed, they belong to him. And, I mean, there are some things we just have to say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, here's what the Bible says. If you put this together, here's, I think, the best place you land. But then, you know, ultimately, I mean, there are going to be plenty of things here. Because we're talking about the future. And, uh, um, you know, we just have to go, I, I don't know what that will look like. Yeah, one more. And then, yeah. Yeah, and and that's described. That that's that, when I talk about the conditions. Like we'll talk about that. Like he's going to sit on a throne. There's going to be a river that comes out. It's going to heal the earth. It's going to like take things that were putrid and salt and death and make them living. And I mean, it's it's cool. There's there's descriptions of that. Christ. And again, you even talk about what Roma says. He has to heal this earth. He, you know, if Christ just, just destroyed it all and then reigned forever, I mean, in some sense, sin kind of won, right? I mean, it destroyed everything. You know, he, had to, he, had to, he couldn't redeem it. I mean, there's going to be a redemption both of not only us. Think about how we're redeemed. He doesn't just go, and you're done. And then he makes a new you, you know? I mean, he redeems us. He sanctifies us. He transforms us. And then he glorifies us. And I think he does the th- same thing to his creation. He's going to, to redeem and sanctify. And he's going to... Make, and, then, and then there'll be the new heavens and the new earth. I think without the healing and without the regeneration of the creation and without the redeeming of the creation, and if you just jump to the new earth, it's almost like, was it just irreparable? I mean, is, is he powerless to, to heal the earth? But I think the Old Testament describes that healing very clearly. And so he will make it inhabitable again. And he will make it uh, Eden-like again, if you want to say it that way. Yeah. Good question. All right, let me pray for us.